Hello and welcome to Bread. We're a newish, spirit-filled, non-denominational church meeting in the Los Feliz area of Los Angeles, or we hope to be again sometime soon. This week, Ed's old friend James speaks to us about the content of his new book, Vexed, which explores the idea of what he calls the package deals we're handed in 21st century partisan politics. It's not necessarily regular Sunday sermon stuff, but we believe it's a very important conversation for the church to be having right now. Can I also remind you that our online racial reconciliation course starts this week on Tuesday at 7.30. We're encouraging everyone who sees themselves as part of Bread to join us for it, so we can move forward together as a community. You can sign up online. James, it's great to have you with us. Thank you very much for being here and listen to uh, your talk. And I think it's going to be very um, interesting for us as a church, particularly what's going on culturally. Obviously, we have a um, election, a presidential election coming up, dominating the airwaves and politics is all around us. But probably it's worth acknowledging to start with that, uh, one, you're a white man and I am also a white man and neither of us are um, Americans. Yeah, that's true. Should we, should we acknowledge that? And also, um, we were actually both British, and this is going um, to be broadcast the day after Independence Day. So this is sort of the most tone-deaf uh, interview, <laughs> yeah, that's true. interview that we could possibly do. But I think it's probably, one, good to acknowledge that. But two, to just say you're, you're someone who, actually I've known for, for a long time, but you're... Uh, someone, would you say that you you are you love America? Yeah, uh, I would say I would definitely put my hand on my heart and say I love America. I've lived in the states um, a number of times in my life as a child in California, um, in uh, Columbus, Ohio, uh, in between high school and college. Um, I then went to graduate school um, on the East Coast and uh, lived. You know, more um, more recently, from 2013 to 2017, in Charlottesville, Virginia. Excellent. And tell us a little bit about about what you were doing in Charlottesville when you were there most most recently. You've you've got a book out. Um, and were you writing that there? Um, tell us a bit about. I was. I was. I um, as with I was working at the University of Virginia um, in Charlottesville, which is a wonderful university. And I was at somewhere called the Institute for Advanced Studies and Culture, which is a bit of a mouthful, um, but is a terrific place. It was founded by um, a guy called James Davison Hunter, who wrote a book called Culture Wars, which introduced that phrase. Well, Bismarck did in the 19th century, but in English, he introduced it into the lexicon. Yeah. Um, and in 1990, I think it was. Um, and so sort of gave an analysis of how left and right, um, you know, um, both operate in similar ways. And it was a sociologist's analysis of that. He wasn't coming down on one side. But he was very interested in culture and it seemed like a great place to write about culture. And um, I taught, when I was there, I taught ethics in the philosophy department at the University of Virginia to undergraduates who were very brilliant and intimidating. Um, and I went to write one book um, that was following on from my PhD, which had been about ethics at the beginning of life um, and sort of vexed uh, debates about um, abortion and when life begins and all of those incredibly complex topics. I should also acknowledge I'm a man again. 
uh, but did try and uh, take on some of those subjects from a philosophical point of view. But then when I got to, as books do, when I got to um, this place, I was interested in looking at a whole variety of what President Obama calls live rail moral issues. Your book, Vex, which I've now finished and I've thoroughly enjoyed, I think it's brilliant. Uh, it's, um, I think it's a timely book. I know you're slightly frustrated that it, it came out during a worldwide... It wasn't that timely, but... Uh, <laughs> Not, not ideal, but it, it seems great timing in terms of um, obviously what we're seeing in this country um, with regards, I think, probably more um, younger people and younger Christians sort of uh, examining where their politics lies and where their Christianity sort of dictates where their politics lies. It seems like a, um, a, a timely book for that um, yeah, so, yeah I know you talk about it in your talk but could you just give us a sort of um, brief overview of, of um, yeah of course so vexed basically is um, rejects political tribalism by um, trying to distance itself from what I call package deals and by that I mean the way that we bundle our positions on those different live rail moral issues now you were in Charlottesville um, during what became a sort of infamous um, Unite the Rights rally. And we were, oh, I wasn't there then, but I still feel I can say we, the town was invaded by neo-Nazis who were running across the lawn, which is the central area in, of the University of Virginia with, um, with torches. Um, and so it was, it, it was a shocking, uh, horrific thing that has happened um, and was then obviously became very symbolic as well um, of what it needed to become symbolic of, of an energy that, that is evil and that needed, that, that needs to be called that. Um, it's, you know, uh, it, it was a great, it was a great tragedy uh, to see it and, and weird not to be there because we had left just weeks before it happened. Sure, sure. Um, it's, it is a sort of very vivid picture and, and uh, you know, again, acknowledging that we're two white men and probably what the world needs now is not hearing two white men talk about race. But yeah, quite. So um, we recorded your talk, which we're going to listen to in a minute, a couple of days before George Floyd was murdered. And therefore, um, before what I think history will see is this catalytic, catalytic uh, moment, this sort of tipping point. Um, uh, after which we've seen protests and we've seen actually people of um, all generations, uh, colours, socio-economic uh, strata, all coming together to not just acknowledge the racism that is sort of systemically built into the history and the, actually the present of this country, but also to fight against it, to become anti-racist. But I think what's also been unnerving is how quickly the issue of Black Lives Matter became a uh, politically partisan one that it suddenly became well if you think these things about other issues then you can't support black lives matter and if you think these things about other issues you must support black lives matter for instance and i suppose my question is how can we um as christians navigate what has become partisan how can we as christians respond um authentically christ-likely to uh, these issues of race right now? I mean, at the risk of sounding like a broken record, I think you know, one of the things is this package deal idea, because 
as, as I've seen it happening with the protests in this country, um, what, what we've seen is the, both, uh, is the, the temptation uh, for the church to dismiss the importance of Black Lives Matter because it perceives that Black Lives Matter is wrapped up with other issues that it may not agree that it may not agree about and therefore it says i don't like the package and therefore i'm not going to take any of the issues or make any of those causes my own and i think that's the real danger uh, this is such a good point i i keep remembering something that a friend of mine said a while back of just how often um what becomes clear to culture is what the church stands against rather than what the church stands for if ever there was a moment yeah. for the church to say, particularly the white church, but for the church in general to say, this is what we stand for, which is equality, which is, uh, you know, looking after those who experience the, the least justice, uh, standing up for those things. It feels like this is, a, this is a time in which the church mustn't miss this opportunity, as so sadly it has in the past, just sort of sticking to talking about what um, it stands against rather than stands. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with that, yeah. So, um, James, thank you so much once again. Uh, we're now going to magically uh, cross over to your pre-recorded talk and um, uh, we're so grateful to have you with us. And not at all. Lots of love, cheers. See you, bye. So now over to James by himself. Relatively recently, I lived in the States for four years in Charlottesville, Virginia and had a wonderful time. I love America, and I love so many things about its culture. One of the things that most fascinates me is the phenomenon of the bumper sticker. So you pull up at a traffic light and there are two cars either side of you. On one is plastered the sticker, pro-life, pro-God, pro-guns, next to liberals take and spend, conservatives defend and protect and on the other car is are plastered the stickers no nukes buy fresh buy local and coexist now what intrigues me about this is not simply people's willingness to parade their values publicly it's the different groupings that those values take working in a liberal university town surrounded by rural conservative counties, I saw a bitter political polarization. I saw family and churches divided down the middle. I saw faculties that had ostracized the professors who were the other side of the political aisle. And I went to dinner parties where there was no debate at all because no one from the other side of the political spectrum had even been invited. What I also saw is how polarisation affects such a wide range of issues. Even the most personal, moral and existential questions we face have been enveloped by ideology. Two ideologies of left and right are supposed to govern how we think not just about domestic policy issues or foreign policy, but about all the weightiest moral quandaries we face. Birth and death, growing up and growing old, sex and gender, what I do with my wallet and what I do with my body. Our positions on the most controversial issues we face 
what President Obama called the live rail moral issues, get bundled up into these package deals and then distributed either side of the political axis for us to choose between wholesale. Certain sets of positions are associated with certain political tribes. So, you're an environmentalist and you care deeply about affirmative action. The temptation is that you simply inherit a view that it's wise to legalise recreational drugs. Or you're an advocate of family values and you think that identity politics is ripping the nation apart. The temptation is that you automatically accept that we should be tough on crime. In their quest for power, politicians pander to different interests and build coalitions. I get that. What I object to is that when these package deals are forced upon us. Because the danger is that by subscribing to these package deals, we come to accept certain views simply because they have historically been tacked on to others. And that increases our chances of making mistakes. Let me give a couple of examples, one on the left and one on the right, before saying something about how the church might think about engaging in politics. As we know well, in 2016, many Christians voted for President Trump because of the Republican Party's pro-life platform. But the problem, arguably, with the Republican package deal is that there are some positions which are not as consistently pro-life. On the 25th of March, 2013, Gail Gerlach, a 56-year-old man from Idaho, left his vehicle idling in his driveway, a 1997 Chevrolet Suburban, jammed full with his supplies and tools. Brendan Kaluza Graham, a 27-year-old convicted car thief, must have thought that this was his lucky day. He jumped in and sped off but suddenly, just as he thought that he had got away with it, crack, a bullet pierced the rear window, hit him in the back of the head and killed him instantly. The vehicle lurched on a couple more blocks before careening into a garage. In court, Gerlach pleaded self-defense to a manslaughter charge because even though the car was driving in the opposite direction, he claimed to be in imminent danger of substantial bodily injury to himself. The jury found him innocent and reimbursed him $220,000 for legal bills. But the thing is, Gerlach is not only an outspoken gun advocate, he is also an anti-abortion activist. He belongs to the lobbying group Pro-Life Rocks, and on one Facebook post, he wrote this. It is a human right to have life and no one's right to take it away at any stage. The irony of this statement was apparently lost on him. I am not, of course, suggesting that all gun advocates would do or condone what Gerlach did, but there does seem to be a tension between the amount of energy that the right expends fighting abortion and the amount of energy that it expends resisting gun control, whether the expansion of background checks, or the prohibition of automatic weapons. At the end of the day, 
what's so pro-life about an AR-15? So that's a mistake on the right. But subscribing to a left-wing package deal, I think, also lands you in trouble. Take sexual liberation, for example, often held up as one of the signal achievements of the countercultural left. Since the 1960s, sexual liberation has given men and women permission and endorsement to pursue their desires free of inhibitions, strictures and pieties. One result, arguably, is the sexual consumerism we have today. In a fascinating piece for Vanity Fair, reporter Nancy Jo Sales explored the phenomenon of the dating app Tinder. She interviewed investment bankers in their 20s, drinking their beers and swiping their screens. Here's what Alex had to say about why you should always be organising multiple dates. You can't be stuck in one lane. There's always something better. And guys view everything as a competition. Who slept with the best, hottest girls? You could talk to two or three girls in a bar and pick the best one. Or you can swipe a hundred people a day. The sample size is so much larger. While another guy, Dan, wrote that Tinder is like ordering fast food, except that you're ordering a person. Now, historically, the most powerful critiques of material consumerism have also been found on the left. Social theorists have attacked capitalism and our compulsion to consume. They identify consumerism with the cult of the transitory, whereby we swiftly exhaust our purchases, never satisfied with what we have, always wanting more. The left's unwavering commitment to sexual liberation prevents it from taking on sexual consumerism, prevents it from seeing that even if the relationships are consensual, to order a person is to treat them as an object, and prevents the left from seeing that commitment to our relationships is what ultimately brings fulfilment to us as human beings. There are three things to say about the relationship between the church and this crazy political world we live in. The first is that Christians' identity is not primarily political. Christians are first Democrats, are not, are not first Democrats or first Republicans or first Americans or even first Brits, but first Christians. As the Apostle Paul put it in his letter to the Colossians, your life is hid with Christ in God. Your identity is hid with Christ in God. Your loyalty is ultimately to the kingdom of God. In his brilliantly titled book, Jesus for President, Shane Claiborne criticises a pastor who, for the grand finale of his sermon, dropped an enormous American flag from the ceiling to the floor of his cathedral. Onlookers wrote, how disturbing it was to see the entire altar and cross covered by the flag. The danger is not just patriotism, though. It is an all-too-close identification with political parties. Political parties have their places, certainly, but they rarely capture the entirety of Christian witness. Secondly, 
Fearing this all-too-close identification, it's easy to rush headlong to the other extreme, withdrawing from politics altogether. We might think this. The culture wars are too toxic for the church to talk publicly about life issues. It puts people off the church. Or, race is too divisive an issue to talk about. It repels people from our central message, which is the reality of Jesus' saving love for them. So instead, we should settle for building intentional communities and living out our faith in peace and quiet, modelling to the world what the gospel looks like. Well, that's great insofar as it goes. But the problem with this response is that there are real issues up for grabs and real injustices out there in our countries. I mean, what would have happened if those Christians who were personally appalled by slavery and would never have countenanced owning slaves themselves thought that abolition was just too controversial an issue to talk publicly about, fearing that it would put opponents off the gospel? What if civil rights activists had decided that they should keep their faith perspective to themselves, their faith perspective on injustice to themselves? No, the gospel has implications for the life of the world, and thus Christians are called to non-violent engagement with politics, whether nationally or locally. Thirdly and finally, the church is called to refuse politics on its own terms, to accept these package deals. A superb New York Times article from earlier, earlier this month focused on the promising emergence of a new group of Christians in America from across different denominations who identify as weird Christians. One adherent, an Episcopal seminarian, said, weird Christianity represents an alternative to both more liberal and more conservative forms of American Christianity. Leah Labresco Sargent, a Catholic convert and writer, described her views as combining a focus on economic and social justice with opposition to abortion, capital punishment and euthanasia and a rejection of capitalist notions of human freedom. The reporter wrote, and I'll conclude with this, this approach to Christianity is likely to reflect Christianity's only viable future in a secular age as a spiritually saturated rejection of the American political binary and therefore the limited possibilities of a culture that denies transcendence.